Happy Friday, Story Fam. I really hope that you've managed to stay high and dry this week as Hurricane Laura has mostly spared the city of Houston. But I also hope that you'll join me in praying for our neighbors to the east. It's going to be a rough few days in places like Beaumont, Lake Charles, and even as far as Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Y'all pray for all the individuals and families and businesses um, that are affected by this storm. And um, let's get ready to do all that we can to come to their aid. A few weeks back, I was asked by Firebrand Magazine to write about my two conversion stories so far in my life, right? I've had these two conversion stories. The first one was when I was 20, when I converted from Bible Belt religion to agnostic humanism in college. And then uh, when I was 34, I converted from agnostic humanism to this Jesus-loving evangelicalism that has dominated my life, my whole worldview for the last seven years. Firebrand published the story that I wrote on Monday, and you can read it at firebrandmag.com. And if you go there, I hope you'll also subscribe to the magazine because I really love and believe in the work that they're doing. I think it's important. But sometimes, um, I was thinking this week that sometimes hearing a person tell their story out loud can be a different experience and maybe more powerful than just reading their words on a page. And so I thought I would read part of the article as this week's Friday Grace and Truth podcast. So here goes. I once stood on a Kansas City sidewalk shouting obscenities through a megaphone at total strangers just because they were attending a politically conservative conference. And you might be wondering how someone like me winds up shouting amplified curse words across a busy city street. I'll explain. It was 2009 and America was under new management. Hope and change were in the air as our first black president took office. The Bush-Cheney years were finally over, and for an outspoken young liberal like me, that felt like a win. In those days, white conservative Christians were the bane of my existence. I was anti-war, pro-choice, LGBTQ ally who said witty things like, Obama isn't the brown-skinned liberal who keeps giving away free health care. You're thinking of Jesus. And things like, Jesus was a socialist, Christians should be too. Where did those ideas come from? Was I radicalized on the secular streets of Seattle? Not even close. I was raised in Red Lick, Texas, and my family's local Methodist church was our home away from home. I preached my first Sunday morning sermon at the age of 12 years old. And as a teenager, I was heavily involved in conference and jurisdictional level Methodist youth events. I was the president of my high school's Fellowship of Christian Athletes, a diehard promise keeper, and a reluctant virgin for the Lord. By the time I went off to college, I had checked all the good Christian boxes, which meant, of course, that I was prepared to face the challenges and hostilities that await overtly Christian underclassmen in secular academic environments, right? Not quite. By the end of my third year, my worldview of choice was agnostic humanism, and my lifelong faith in God was all but gone. Did I mention that when I deconverted from Christianity, I was a religious studies major at a United Methodist college? This may not surprise you if you've heard all the whispers about the rapid secularization of our institutions of higher learning. The rumors are true. 
critical theory, intersectionality, and the coronation of victimhood as the summit of virtue have been steeping for decades in academia's illiberal teapot of counterfeit tolerance. In the name of liberation, powerful professors have leveraged their considerable privilege to compel entire generations of young students to abandon critical thinking and surrender unconditionally to their totalitarian narrative of white Western villainy. My senior thesis paper on ecclesiology reads like a Marxist manifesto. Even if Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, all that matters is whether the church bearing his name will rise up to conquer present-day demons like systemic injustice, racism, and income inequality. In the 12 years that followed, I attended a left-leaning United Methodist Seminary, became an ordained elder in the Missouri Annual Conference, led three local churches, and oversaw various social justice initiatives serving refugees, immigrants, at-risk youth, and homeless people. Although I was proud of the work that I was doing, my inner life was consumed by the flames of rage and depression, and a sinister addiction to online pornography covertly added fuel to those fires. My sermons often amounted to angry and vulgar diatribes against all the ways conservative Christians were pushing people farther away from God. But I never stopped to consider what gave me the right to speak about a God in whom I had no vested interest. I was stuck living a lie until late 2012 when an activist friend of mine asked me if I had ever been to the Holy Land. And when I said no, she said, I'm going to find a way to get you over there. You need to see how the Zionists are destroying Palestine. And nine months later, I was exploring the land that gave rise to the Bible. I died in Capernaum, or at least the old Eric did. My wretched, divided life passed away the day that I stood near the first century house where first-generation Christians gathered to worship in the years following Jesus' death. My tour guide was an archaeology enthusiast named Bert, and he told me all about the graffiti on the walls inside of that ancient house church, engravings that read, Lord Jesus Christ and Christ have mercy, among other things. And none of that surprised me. I knew that Christians had been calling Jesus their God ever since the days of Constantine's Edict of Milan. But then Bert said, Archaeologists have dated those etchings to the first half of the first century A.D., and I felt my ontological foundations trembling beneath my feet. One of my favorite weapons to use against evangelicals had always been the argument that Jesus' divinity was a later amendment to the original biblical narrative. What would it mean, then, if this Capernaum graffiti was scratched onto those walls at least 263 years before Constantine's edict and several decades prior to the first gospel being written? It would mean that the people who knew Jesus best, his friends, followers, and family, worshipped him as their God. I knew enough about Jewish scripture and beliefs to be certain that, for any self-respecting Jew, Worshipping a mere man was off-limits. The rule against worshipping anyone but God sits atop the Ten Commandments. Not even Abraham, Moses, or Elijah was worthy of worship. But the faithful Jews who walked with Jesus, including some who watched him die, worshipped him post-mortem. That day in Capernaum, I was faced with history's most consequential question. Was Jesus just a man, or is he truly God? 
after a considerable amount of reflection. I came to the uncomfortable and shocking conclusion that Jesus is who he and his followers said he was, Emmanuel, God with us. Reaching that monumental decision was the easy part, frankly. The harder work awaited me back home. I knew that I owed my faithful, patient, Jesus-loving wife an apology, or two, or a hundred, for making her life like a living hell for the better part of 13 years. I also knew that it was my responsibility to go back to the pulpits where I had preached all that heresy and hate, to tell the truth about my sin, my shame, and most of all, the truth about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I look back on this journey so far, my heart overflows with gratitude because it made me who I am today. Ironically, my newfound evangelical faith has sparked a greater, even more authentic yearning to seek here and now the economic and racial justice of God's heavenly kingdom. Prior to my Capernaum experience, I spoke nonstop about diversity and inclusion, but my churches and staff were almost always exclusively white and liberal. In 2015, my family and I moved to Houston, where God has blessed us with the opportunity to plant one of the most diverse Methodist congregations in the Texas Annual Conference. We've still got a long way to go before we become the church that God wants us to be, but we are trusting the Holy Spirit to guide our steps. By His mercy, God plucked me as a brand from the fire, and His Spirit has prompted me to offer gentle warnings to my fellow well-intentioned Wesleyans and other Christians because in times like these, when emotions run hot and culture wars rage all around us, it can be tempting to push the gospel of Jesus aside as we search for some real solutions elsewhere. So how can you tell when you, your church, or your denomination has drifted toward secular solutions to our society's spiritual issues? From my personal experience, I'll offer three telltale signs of one who may be inching toward veiled agnostic humanism. Number one, laughing when Christians fall. When I was an angry leftist, criticizing well-known evangelicals was like my favorite pastime. When preachers and politicians like Mark Driscoll and Mark Sanford fell from grace, I didn't stop to grieve for their families or for the people who looked up to them as leaders or for their churches. I laughed. I tweeted. It felt like we won. Why? Because one of the lies that I believed back then was that tribe mattered more than truth. And even though I called myself a Christian, my true tribe was the political left. And today, Whenever I hear of a prominent Christian getting into trouble, my heart breaks for them and for those that they've been leading. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to call them to repentance and to restore them. Because that's how the power of Jesus works. In the shadow of the cross, I know that I'm in no position to judge anyone, especially in the hour of their greatest need. Number two, explaining away the Bible. After my conversion in 2013, I looked back at the sermons that I had written while walking in darkness. It was shocking to see how many times I was deeply ashamed of the Bible. In almost every instance, I would go out of my way to apologize for what I believed were textual inaccuracies and immoral outdated teachings. I regularly mocked Leviticus and Revelation as though they don't represent the inspired word of God. I apologized profusely for Paul, who, according to the old me, was clearly a misogynist who didn't really get it. 
I argued against the idea of hell as a place of eternal torment, as Jesus said it is. I believed in Adam Hamilton's three-bucket fallacy before it was cool, thereby creating a kind of Stepford Bible that revealed the only God who I was willing to follow back then, the God made in my image. When you love Jesus, you love the Word. Shame about the Bible is incompatible with Christian teaching. Every word of Scripture is inspired and purposeful. God told precisely the story He intended to tell. Even the dark and dirty parts of the Bible are meant to reveal the world as it really is, a world deeply in need of Jesus. As John Wesley once wrote, If there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. If any writings were ever deserving of the unholy third bucket where we throw all the parts we don't like of the Bible, my old sermons were worthy of that bucket. If anyone was ever deserving of eternal hellfire, it was me because in my arrogance, I misled so many people for so long. But our God is gracious and kind. And now, each time I have the privilege of opening the scriptures, I tremble at the thought of God affording such grace to a sinner like me. Even now, seven years after coming to Jesus, I still sometimes wonder why I could possibly be allowed anywhere near the word that I once took for granted. Number three. Deconstructing evangelicals becomes greater than discipling unbelievers. Upon reflecting on my own leadership during those 13 years of darkness and upon observing other Christian leaders who now walk the wide road from which Jesus saved me, I've noticed that the overwhelming majority of converts to biblically lukewarm churches appear to be coming from other churches with higher views of Scripture. There could be a lot of reasons for this phenomenon. For example, some Christians and churches are just so rigid about the rules of Scripture that they wield their Bibles like weapons of war. And in these cases, people sometimes have good reasons to leave their churches. In other instances, however, I've seen Christians who leave Bible-believing churches do so simply because they don't want to be confronted with their sin. Either it's too painful for them or they're just not ready to stop sinning yet. These folks often find a soft landing spot in left-leaning communities because, in my experience, the only iniquities deemed worthy of condemnation in such churches are the systemic sins of white America. These are just a few of the warning signs to watch out for when striving to remain faithful to Jesus, especially during stressful, anxious times like these. Other signs to watch out for may include a devaluation of human life, especially vulnerable human life, or a disdain for wholesome innocence, and maybe an increasingly subjective moral compass. To be sure, these are trying times. Our hearts are broken and our minds are blown by the depths of human depravity and pain that we've seen on display in recent months, and people want answers. Well, Take heart, friends. We may not have all the answers, but we'll always have the answer. What can we do to achieve real racial reconciliation? We can trust that Jesus has already reconciled us to God and to one another, and we can choose to live accordingly.
How should we behave toward those with whom we disagree? The same way Jesus behaved toward us when we disagreed with him. What do you do when some angry stranger curses at you through a megaphone? Be patient with him. He'll come around one day by the grace of God. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. I know it was a little longer than normal, but friends, I'm so glad that you're here today and I hope you have a great weekend and I hope to see you online this Sunday for worship at 845, 945, or 1105. Bye, everybody.